Hello, and welcome to Stumble Upon. I'm Austin. And I'm Emily. Today we are discussing Two Undercover Angels, directed by Jess Franco. As always, there will be plenty of fucking spoilers. But if that doesn't scare you, Morpho might. So grab your favorite red lipstick and prepare to kick some ass, because Klaus Tiller is looking for his next sculpture. And we're back. And we're back. It has been six months since our last recording for Stumble Upon, and we have been busy. Mm-hmm. We have been working really hard on the election cycle, mm-hmm. where we're really pleased to say that the ads we made to protect women's right to abortion in Kentucky worked, and we were able to protect access to abortions in Kentucky. That was a really big campaign we worked on. Mm-hmm. We're really proud of that one. Yeah, We got Medicaid access in South Dakota. Mm-hmm. And that was another really big campaign we worked on. We're really, really proud of that. So now if you're in South Dakota, you have access to Medicaid expansion, yeah. which means a really big deal for a lot of people. Yeah, it means that you're going to be helped uh, in your financial uh, distress with the with illness and and tragedy. Yeah, we had one woman that we interviewed for the ads, and she's amazing. And she already was $400,000 in debt due to her previous cancer treatment. Mm-hmm. And she has a little girl, and her and her husband did not have health insurance because they were waiters or, or low-wage earners, um, didn't have access to any health care. Yeah, they weren't, they weren't covered by their employers. No, not at all, and didn't have access to anything. And without Medicaid expansion, they were having to declare bankruptcy when she got a second diagnosis of cancer. Yep. And her heart was broken because she couldn't figure out how to afford to treatment, and yeah. this is what this is for. And so now there's Medicaid expansion in South Dakota, and this doesn't happen again. Yeah. So we're really proud of the work we've been doing. Yeah, we also helped get psilocybin legalized in Colorado, which is a really important uh, mental health issue for for, uh, guided care for people with PTSD or chronic illnesses or who are in hospice as a way for us to be a more empathetic uh, uh, community towards people who are in pain and help maybe realign thought processes so that people don't view suicide as the only way out, Mm -hmm. uh, that they can get the help that they deserve for, especially when it comes to veterans who, who have put their bodies and minds on the line for this country to not have a way out of the darkness of what they have seen and what they've been privy to is... Well, it's a fucking tragedy. Mm -hmm. So it's nice to be able to work on things like that that actually help people in in this world and and, and maybe make our country a stronger place. Yeah, and and certainly open to more conversation about different ways for mental health treatment. We've been working with the Marijuana Policy Project for many, many years and helped legalize it in Washington State, in Oregon, Mississippi, Montana... We've, North Dakota. North Dakota. Mm-hmm. We have helped legalize uh, that as well as decriminalize all drugs in Oregon. Mm-hmm. That was in 2020. We worked on that campaign. So it's been really exciting. What we do besides make movies is make progressive democratic political ads, which allow us to help shape policy for the betterment mm-hmm. of Americans. And mm-hmm. we're really proud of that work. Yeah. 
but that means we're real busy. Yes. And so we were super busy in 2022. Yeah, that that coupled with just the small thing of making and finishing our film. Yep. We finished our movie. It officially came out on December 5th. Mm-hmm. Citywidemovie.com. We're going to have a show in our show notes. There'll be links for you as well as a secret promo code so that you can get 50% off the film. And uh, that allows you to watch it and see the work that we've been doing. You can hear uh, the incredible soundtrack, which we were going for like a 90s style of, of having an actual soundtrack with lots of bands. And they're all local Philly bands that you may or may not have ever heard of. Uh, they're incredible, and they really tell the story of Philadelphia because it's what it sounds like right now. These are the bands that are touring the city right now. Mm-hmm. They're incredible. Are they touring the city? They're touring the they're just, city yes, in just, a little bus. <laughs> it's a small bus, and you jump on, and you hear the bands play. Okay, they are touring the world, Yes, but I uh, haven't done this in a while, so... Bear with me. I just like, are they playing on their touring of the city? Or are they just like actually seeing? They're like, hey, I'm gonna go to, uh, I'm gonna go see the zoo today. I'm gonna go to the Mudder Museum. Today. Oh, they're like, like on, on that a, bus. Uh, yeah, they're touring the city, the double decker bus, <laughs> yeah. and they're like telling everybody what's happening. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but not playing music. Yep, not the thing that they're really exceptionally good at. That's so funny. I like that we distracted ourselves from our own film. Uh, but like, yeah. The film is a queer romantic comedy. Uh, it's it's based in Fishtown. It was shot in Fishtown. It is if you know Fishtown in any way, like it is kind of the vibe of the of the little neighborhood. It's basically it's it's full of romance. It's full of like fear. It's full of like a thriller elements. Like it's just mm-hmm. like the thing about Fishtown to me is any any day any night can turn any way they it could possibly go and you have no idea. You just kind of ride the night for as long as you want to be on it and see what happens. And that's just the film. Like yeah. it's, it's a lovely hangout film. It's very much inspired by both Martin Scorsese's after hours, as well as Pedro Amadovar's women on the verge of a nervous breakdown. Yeah. So it's very absurd. It's very surreal. It's very silly. It's funny. It's serious. It's mm-hmm. romantic. And it's fun. It's yeah. really fun. It was really fun. We got to do a private screening for our actors and cast and crew. And it was wonderful to hear everybody laughing in the audience. It was just so fun. Yeah. It really, really was. So Citywide is available for you to rent or buy today on Vimeo. We'll have the link, like I said, in the show notes to direct you straight to it. We really hope you rent or buy it because we are super indie and with every purchase, it goes towards us being able to make the next film. Mm-hmm. And Austin has seven scripts he's already written. We have two more that we're thinking about and trying to figure out how to start on. And so we definitely have lots of ideas on what we want to do next. The trick is we just have to be able to sell enough copies to be able to do it. Yeah. And we're going to because slow and steady wins a race. And one other thing that's important to note about the film is that we made the film zero waste we we took on the challenge of trying to make sure that our activism and our belief in this in belief in this world uh was matched by our art so we tried very hard to make sure that there was no waste or as little waste as possible and in the end we made about 16 ounces Mm -hmm. over the course of three years in this film the average movie makes 300 tons of garbage and we made 16 ounces. So it can be done. 
it is essential that we as artists lead the way mm-hmm. to change the industry, yeah. to show them what it is we want to see and what it is that can be done. So don't take any more crap from any other major Hollywood studio. Sustainable filmmaking is the future and we're here to prove that it can be done. Yeah, and it can, it can be done practically and it can be done on the street in mm-hmm. any town that you want to make it in. And it can be entertaining. Yeah. Every film about trash, every film about the environment, all these stories that are documentaries are wonderful and we're super supportive of them. But it's time for sustainability to also just be fun. That's what we did. So please check it out and watch it and uh, let us know what you think. But today, yeah, we are going to be discussing Jess Franco's Two Undercover Angels. Yes, which has other names as well uh, that we'll we'll get into as we go. But I wanted to I wanted to touch on one simple thing or one small thing before we jumped into uh, to the Franco film, which is we were watching Glass Onion the other night, the the new Ryan Johnson Netflix film, and. I was thinking as I was watching it, because we had watched it more or less back to back with Two Undercover Angels, and it just was a, like, it's an interesting kind of pairing in the sense that I know that Ryan Johnson is a really quality filmmaker. Like, he makes solid films. Like, they're well-constructed, they're fun, they're well-acted. But there's something so clean about the work that he makes that it almost kind of makes it boring too shiny yeah it's like there's something that's interesting about watching a film that is so well made and so well constructed and then feeling absolutely nothing about it while still being entertained Mm -hmm. like i would recommend to almost anybody to watch glass onion because i think it's just an entertaining film and murder mysteries are fun all the actors are really incredibly well cast as well as give really good performances throughout the film but that said i much prefer Two Undercover Angels because of all the the crazy that's in it. All, mm-hmm. all the things that don't make sense. All the little elbows that are just sticking out here or there because it makes, it, it engages my mind in a way that I don't think that, that clean films like Glass Onion do. I'm not going to, I'm never going to have a really heartfelt debate about what's going on in Glass Onion. The only things that I will ever have a conversation about is like, little bits and bobs about like when did you know that this person did it did you like this performance did did you yeah. like how the cinematography was and and that's all beautiful and wonderful but there's it's almost boring in its perfection yeah it feels kind of like looking at a michelangelo statue or rodin and you're like wow that's incredible i can never fucking do that and then you look at something really really messy some piece of art that's just not haphazardly put together, but put together with this incredibly messy passion. And you're like, okay, so I get this. Mm-hmm. And that's and that's the thing that I kind of love about Jess Franco's films in general, is that this is a dude who has over 200 credits on his IMDb page. Yeah, he is incredibly prolific yeah. filmmaker. And there's some debate in, in the world about how many films he actually ended up directing, because some of the films are like duplicates, because... They were recut by a different distributor and put hardcore scenes in, and then suddenly it has a new name, but it's still the same director. And so even at the most extensive ending, you're like, oh, half of his films are, are doubles that way. It's still a hundred fucking films, no, man. So many movies. Yeah. Having made one, I can safely say that was so much work. I don't understand how you'd have enough time to make 
even a hundred. Yeah. I don't know how you'd make 30. Like, I want to try. There's stories that he made like 13 films in one year. I mean, yes, please. Yeah. How the fuck do you do that? I want to do that. I think you, well, you need a bigger team than just two people. Mm. So first things first, we have to have a bigger crew. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And Franco is, uh, is a filmmaker who started his work in the, in the late uh, 1950s and he passed away in 2013, I believe. And he, his, his life and kind of span of, he was a Spanish filmmaker, Jesus uh, Franco, but Jess, and it seems that everybody calls him Uncle Jess. I uh, love that. Which is kind of lovely. Uh, But like you have this guy who, who was born into cinema during the, uh, the dictatorship of Francisco Franco, no relation of uh, uh, during during those years in Spain when there was just a dictatorship up until 1975, I believe. And Franco made films both in Spain and then all over Europe through a whole bunch of different co-financing projects that European cinema has that American cinema does not. We do not, and it pisses me off. But he's such an interesting kind of figure in this sense because there is just a... While he's getting a reappraisal now, there's just a whole bunch of disinterest in his cinema throughout the uh, throughout his career and and even post by a lot of cinematic aficionados who are like i don't fucking care about him there's a lot of people who don't think he's very good i guess is what it what i would say which is unbelievable to me because there's so much to pick from there there has to be at least one film that he's made that everyone will enjoy everyone has different tastes therefore something within his collection of films should speak to each person yeah i mean i understand that not everybody wants to dig through 200 films to find out which one they like right but i just think that the language of his cinema is such that you have to not expect the glass onion Mm -hmm. because if you go in with the expectation of that perfection you're going to be confused and annoyed Mm -hmm. but if you go in with an open mind and say you might not get it right away you might get frustrated by the shots that are out of focus. Mm-hmm. You might get annoyed by the fact that the acting, sometimes you're like, what is happening with the acting? But all those are choices. Yeah. And sometimes, yeah, it's it's the lighting was bad or his he couldn't get the focus right on the camera. Maybe the camera that he was using had shitty lenses or something Yeah. because he was working so quickly. I just don't th- see that as a problem. I, I find that so fun. Yeah. It... it- feels like that fun that you're talking about feels this feels like exuberance to me like mm-hmm. he he wanted to make film he just wanted to keep creating and 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 making and it's just there's something really really inspiring and it, I know that it kind of sounds like we're trying to give him a backdoor compliment and I really don't feel like that's what I want to I want to I want to lead with because the man made fucking films that are interesting. Like his so good. Two of his actors, Soledad Miranda and Lena Romy, were incredible performers, and they went for it. And there are a lot of cinem- cinematic choices that are made in American films by actors all over the place that just don't. They just don't have the balls, I guess, to go for it. They just don't go for everything that you could in a scene and there's something really admirable about somebody going i don't care i'm gonna just i'm gonna i'm gonna play to the back fences i'm gonna play to the people in the back and you're going to see me do this stuff 
and it's going to be fun and it's going to be enjoyable. And if you don't like it, here's another film. If you don't like this, this uh, slasher film, here's a, uh, here's a noir or here's a, a vampire uh, ennui film. <laughs> here's, here's a really interesting discussion of uh, a Marquis de Sade novel. There's just so much to choose from and so many swings that he and his performers were going for. It's incredible to just dive in. And it's hard really to pick a spot with a filmmaker that's as prolific as he has been. Sometimes it's really hard to figure out where you you should start. And so that's why we're suggesting we start with two undercover angels, or the Red Lips, as they are sometimes known. Yeah, that's they're kind of spy name, and they're kind of like the films are. They made two films: this uh, uh, under two undercover angels and uh, Kiss Me Monster. And they're both known as Red Lips films, but Two Undercover Angels is what Vinegar Syndrome has released this film uh, under, even though it's also known as Sadist Erotica. Mm. Well, it's an awesome place to start mm-hmm. because you have everything you want. You have two incredible detectives who also sometimes seem like they're not incredible, but they are. Mm-hmm. Um, you have a crime drama that you're trying to figure out. It's funny and silly. It's bright and colorful. It's at a beautiful location. Mm-hmm. And it's just fun. Yeah. So it's a good one to start with because it's it moves really quickly mm-hmm. and it's very silly. Yeah. And, and it's full of all the little fun things that Franco would do later in his career. Like Franco really loved having right angles in his films, things that didn't necessarily make sense or seem like they were joined perfectly because he was because he felt that life is a whole bunch of right angles or right turns and things like at one moment you're laughing and the next moment you're crying and why not just have that as what's happening in the film. And so there's like, it feels disjointed. And I think that that's on purpose. Mm -hmm. I think that that's one of the things that Franco really did well is kind of master this sense of I'm going to build on ease because my structure of my films are not going to be easy. Mm-hmm. It's like watching a David Lynch film and being at the end of it going, I'm I'm upset that I don't understand it. And, and then realizing that that's because it's a fucking mystery. Mm-hmm. Like things that are mysterious, you don't understand. Mm-hmm. Like that's that's exactly what it is. That's why it's called a mystery. I think one of the biggest challenges for cinema goers today is there has been too much Marvel films. Mm-hmm. And by that, I mean... Not necessarily just the Marvel films, but just in general, there's this paint-by-numbers cinema that is happening across the boards because we are missing out on our indie layer of films. There's no mid-layer, no like medium-budget indie films. There's mm-hmm. just these massive $300 million films. Yeah. And there's no risk in these movies because they cannot take a risk because there's too much money involved. And so everything becomes spoon-fed to you Mm -hmm. and you walk out of the cinema going that is exactly the thing that i thought would happen and it happened and i am comfortable yes and and because of that i think people don't have the opportunity to learn the language and stretch their muscles um to watch films that are more messy and more complicated and not as direct as you were saying Mm -hmm. the thing about 200 cover angels that i love is that on your first viewing you might be like what just happened i mean i think i know what happened but i'm not really sure what happened but then did that happen and yeah good go back and watch it again because on second viewing and third viewing it gets better and better yeah because you get you're like okay so i already have the first layer of understanding who these people are 
Mm-hmm. I have an understanding of the world. I know what their their house is, which is a kind of a confusing house. I understand that that's the kitchen and that's the front door and this is their bathtub in the middle of the living room, but that's also their bedroom. And are they lovers? I think so, yeah. but I don't know. And it doesn't matter. And it's all, the, but you get to like dig in and, and find the little bits mm-hmm. that they're more tip of the hat that he gives. He gives you so much information, but it's so rapid fire and not spoon fed that it takes a couple viewings to understand it. Yeah. Which is so nice. Yeah. It's, it's kind of like the old Altman quote of being, like being upset with anybody who's only seen his films once because you didn't really see it. Like you don't listen to an album once and go, you know what? I listened to that Janelle Monet album and I fucking, I, I listened to it once. I got everything. I never need to listen to it again. Yeah. Like, no, what? No. Why would you do that? Like you're a moron. Like that's the same thing with, with, with this. Like why, like, as you said, I don't know if uh, the two leads, if it's Diana and Regina mm-hmm. are in a relationship or not. Mm-mm. And I don't think it matters. No, it doesn't matter at all. The story doesn't revolve around their relationship and how if they're if one is upset that the other one's in love with Paul Newman or not. Like it's just part of who they are. Yeah, it's like they're both completely free to be themselves at all times, and the other one loves each other. They both love each other so much mm-hmm. for who they are, and who they are is rapidly changing and yet staying the same. Yeah, it doesn't. It it's doesn't matter. Fluid. Yeah, like they're they're. Their characters are so, so well fleshed out to them and how they're performing them. Yeah. That what we don't get, I would say, doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Like, jumping back for a second, it's like I realize now that something like Glass Onion is not a mystery. It's a solved film. Yes, like, from the beginning. Like, it's a film that, like, you watch it to find out the solution. You don't watch it to find out the mystery. Mm-mm. We have moved to a place, it feels like, that we're misnaming everything, but keeping the names the same. We're not allowing the evolution of our language to match the evolution of the art that we're seeing. Mm-hmm. Like, all these all these mystery shows, quote-unquote mystery shows that are on TV or on uh, uh on in the theater are more or less just solved stories. They're like they're just crime dramas. Yeah. They're like there's a crime. That's it. And we're going to solve it. Yes. And you're going to feel comfortable at the end of that. And there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. We all love those crime stories because they're fun and you you have a sense of order at the yeah. end of it, which in this world is so hard because there is no order. There is constant disorder and it's it's frustrating and it's exhausting. And especially with three years in the pandemic, like it's just been a lot. Yeah. So having that that comfort of the crime drama is great. But you're right. Class Onion is not a mystery at all. Mm-hmm. I don't even think, I mean, I'll watch it again at a later date, but I don't know that I need to because I already know what happened. And then I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. It's cool. Yeah. But I did like Knives Out a lot. Right. Again, that's another solved story. Mm-hmm. All you're watching for is to see how the resolution hits. Mm -hmm. And the thing about Two Undercover Angels, to me, is that it's not about how it's solved. It's about the people who are in it and what they're doing. Who cares how it's solved, what the resolution really is? All I kind of want is them to move on to their next case and continue yeah. to live. I know. I wish we had like a hundred films mm-hmm. of these two characters. They're so fun. Yeah. 
They're so silly. I want to know what kind of messes they get into and how do they get out of them. And the, well, shall we do the synopsis? Yeah, that like there isn't a ton of synopsises. Synopsises. Not sure if that's a word. Synopsi. Synopsi. We have had this conversation before, and we still have not looked up the answer. And you know what? I will continue to have this conversation ignorant of the answer forever. Yeah, we don't want to answer this question. This so is, if you know the answer, cool. Yeah, don't 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 let us know. We don't, I don't care. I don't, I don't care. I don't I don't give a shit. Like I will happily live in oblivion without knowing whether or not synopsis, synopsises, like whatever the fuck it is, don't need to know. Not going to make my day okay, no, better. I'm definitely going to look it up now. Yeah. Uh according to random person on IMDb because IMDb doesn't have a uh, Those are my favorite. Yeah. Uh, this internet entity there wrote we go. Red Lips are two female detectives trying to find missing models and dancers. A pop artist called Klaus Tiller and his werewolf-like assistant, Morpho, are the main suspects for the murder. This is incredible for a couple of reasons. One, it names just the men. and it, Wait, that, that's it? Yep, that's the whole thing? That's the whole thing. It, it only names the men. It doesn't name our two, our two leads. And it misnames the film. Okay, now I have to see it. Yeah, it just because this is crazy. That is so weird. Sorry, I just had to take a moment because it's so bad. Yeah, I needed to read it again. Yeah, because it it does kind of touch on some of the things, but again, it doesn't. How would you know what kind of fucking film this is? Like, it's a comedy. It's a spy film. It's a it's a mystery. It has as is, as is referenced here. It has a villain in it who is a very hairy gentleman, but. It's unclear if he's a werewolf or not. He just has a lot of hair. Yeah, I don't know. It's like, so weird. I actually forgot about Morpho mm-hmm. because he's so not relevant to the story. I love Morpho, though. Morpho's every time Morpho shows up on screen, just ominously ready to strangle women, mm-hmm. is it, like, I'm just like, hey, it's Morpho. He's like, he's to a, me, is a very compelling character, but also he's. He's unimportant to the story. It doesn't matter at all. I yeah. I always I do also enjoy seeing him because his character feels so out of left field. Yeah. But but I like it. But yeah, I'd never when I think of this movie, I never think of him. Yeah. I always think of our two leads mm-hmm. and then sometimes the Italian. Yeah. Because he cracks me up. Yep. I love the manager of the art gallery for Klaus Tiller. Yep. That guy is hilarious. But mostly I just think of our two leads. And, and the incredible uh, Inspector McClune. Oh, yes. The inspector. Who? <laughs> the famous inspector from Interpol, yeah, who, as he proclaims. Who just, in one of my favorite scenes, just shows up in a window to shoot at, to possibly shoot Morpho. It's unclear if he hits Morpho or not. Morpho reacts like he's been shot, but then Morpho never has any wound on he's him. He's fine. So he's fine. Uh, he's fine. He comes back later. He's fine. And then McClune just goes back out the window instead of chasing the fucking guy who's come into the house right? to murder somebody. It, He's like, I'm strange. just going to go back out the way I came. My work here is done. Why did they have a ladder there? Because <laughs> it's obviously not. I thought it was the first floor. And yeah. in later later scenes, it does seem like they're on the first floor. Mm-hmm. But in that scene, they're on the second floor. It's it's. Oh, there's a cat. <laughs> yeah. I was like, what's happening on my leg? <laughs> But, like, this lunacy that we're talking about right now is kind of the lunacy and the vibe of the whole fucking film. Because in the very beginning of the film, there's a, a scene where the red one of the red lips is pretending to be a statue in an art 
dealer's apartment. Yes. And it's awesome. And and so she's just standing there in the dark with her hands up ready to karate chop and the art dealer uh the guy, the night watchman. I'm not exactly sure what this fucking guy's I job is, but it's played by Jess Franco. He keeps flashing a light at her because he doesn't think that she's a statue. Meanwhile, there's also a woman in a glass box mm-hmm. that's obviously a woman in a glass box just sitting there who might be dead. I'm but, pretty sure she's dead. But nobody ever comments on the fact that there's a body in a glass box hanging out while there's a murderer at large killing Models and dancers, mm-hmm. and, and, and maybe strippers. Yeah, unclear. It's unclear, but like so, our 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 red lips heroine is just standing there, and finally the the night watchman dude turns his back, and she karate chops him in the back of the head, and and then cuts out a painting, and then kisses the wall with her red lips to leave her DNA and her lips mm-hmm. on the wall, mm-hmm. and then leaves. Well, this was shot. Pre- Prior to DNA testing, yeah, so yeah. I get it. It's a good touch. N- yeah, 1969 is when the film came out. And DNA testing came out, according to the internet, around 1985. So she had a lot of time right. to get away with making out with all of her crime scene moments. Yeah. Uh, and she I loved is, it. She is wearing gloves, though. So they're like... Smart. Because at and this a mask. point... Yeah, at this point, like fingertip, uh, fingerprints were a thing. But thing, my favorite... Is when we realize that they only have one outfit, cat burglar outfit, yep. for whenever they're trying to be detectives or break in places or steal things or whatever they need to do for their case, which I love. Mm-hmm. But they share the same outfit. Yeah, why which, have two? Which is the best. One of the best scenes in the movie is when they carry in the goofy male romantic Italian? love. Uh, what's his name? Freda, I think his name yeah. is. Yeah. After they've put enough liquor in him to poison him. They just Absolutely. carry like him they back. They waterboard to- him with gin. Yes. And, and then they complain that he's an alcoholic and that he can't handle his liquor, which is incredible. <laughs> it's absurd. Just, yeah. And I don't know what their end game was with that, to no, be honest. I think they were just trying to find out information. Yeah. And I'm not sure they, they didn't find get out, anywhere. Yeah. Like they're, I'm not sure that they're very good at their jobs from time to time. And yet they are also very good at their jobs. Well, is and okay, so that's interesting because I think one of the things we talked about before and I'd like to expand on now is the spectrum of women. Mm-hmm. The representation of women in this film is awesome because it is on a spectrum. So the two women are successful detectives. They're better than Interpol at what they do, mm-hmm. but they try and fail as well. And I love that about these characters because they're trying different things like waterboarding with gin. Yep. The Italian who we know is connected in some way, but it's never really clear quite how he's connected. I believe he's hired by Klaus Tiller at one point. Yes. And so it's really fun. He's definitely working with Tiller. Yeah, because he's trying to get the statue at the same time that she's trying to get it. I think it's explicitly described that he's working with Tiller. Mm-hmm. Again, but it's not really spoon-fed to you, so you have to watch it a bunch of times to figure out exactly how who's connected where, when, and how. Yeah. But again, we go back to the idea of the spectrum of women. So you have the detectives who are successful at what they do and are fun and hilarious and all the different things, mm-hmm. but not the greatest detectives in the world, like no. Benoit, you know? Yeah. Um, and so that's fun because they're they're good, but they mess up. Yeah. Then you have... And they only have one outfit. So when they, <laughs> they have... They only have one. So when they need room. two people to drop off a body, only one of them wears that outfit and the other one wears their normal clothes... Yeah. With and no they, mask. And no mask. And they just drop off the body. Yeah. I'm not, so yeah. I'm not sure why they needed 
to wear the cat burglar outfit at all. But yeah, who knows? Like it, it's it's an, it's awesome. Yeah, it it's nonsensical in a way that I fucking adore. It's totally absurd. Yeah, in the best way. Yeah. So okay, so the detectives, and then another layer of women. Uh, represented is of course the victims the reason why we chose to put this film as episode two of war is because this film is literally a war on women klaus tiller is murdering women he is putting them into the his art Mm -hmm. literally as well as capturing them on film as well as painting their deaths yeah but he, in order to create art, the only way this man is interested in creating art is by murdering women. So there is a war on the body. Yeah. Um, and so the next group of women that I represented is, of course, victims. Mm-hmm. And especially the victim at the very beginning, Lita, yeah. is really upsetting because she was his ex-wife. Is it ex-wife or just ex-partner? I, I was unsure. I thought it was the wife. Okay. I thought she was his wife. But either way, she has gotten out of a t- toxic, abusive relationship, and then that leads to the third group of women represented. The mystery of this film is who is the killer. And we know that it's Klaus Tiller, but Klaus Tiller is also uh, Mr. Raddick, mm-hmm. who is the person who hires uh, who hires the, the red lips to find Lita, even though he has, in fact, killed Lita. And when Lita is killed at the beginning, she's killed because this woman sets up uh, a a meeting between Lita and Mr. Raddick. Right. She's missed. Lita has divorced her husband or left her partner, who is Mr. Raddick, who was a toxic, abusive man, mm-hmm. proven by the fact that he is Klaus Tiller. Yeah. And he is murdering women. Yes. And so she is forced to meet with him after she has asked not to mm-hmm. by her boss because her boss wants her to meet with him because he wants to and he's been helping bankroll this business. Yeah. So this is, again, another layer of, this, of the spectrum of women represented are women who are accomplices who are not supportive. They're mm-hmm. not allies to women, mm-hmm. but rather supportive of men who are toxic and abusive. Yeah. And if you think for a minute that women out there don't exist like that, then you're not living in reality. Yeah. And so uh, so that's another layer of women. You have the women who are actively working against other women mm-hmm. and who are not setting them up to succeed, but rather to be killed. Mm-hmm. So you have that uh, character, the one that owns the clothing store, whatever that space is, designer. Mm-hmm. And then you have the woman that's been working with Klaus Tiller. Yeah who is obviously there to help murder people too. And I like that about him. I love that he shows so many different kinds of women in all the different ways that are represented in this film. I think that's really fun and I think that's very proactive and feminist. I also think that there's, I think there's a fourth layer of women. There's also the cohorts. The best, who, the best friend. Yeah, the woman who is, who hits on Diana at the, at the club mm-hmm. and later helps her escape the first attack that, Klaus Tiller and Morpho have on uh, on Diana. Mm-hmm. I think that like it shows as you're saying like there are, like there are multiple layers of how women can be seen or presented in this film. They're the dancers. Yes. As well. Yeah. They're, they're, they're performers they're, but are having a good time sometimes, sometimes no. Yeah. Like it's and we can we can delve into that character as well a little bit later, but I think that to simplify what you just say what you just said, we have the red lips who are our pre- protagonists. Mm-hmm. We have the the the, the victims like mm-hmm. Lita and and the the dancer who is uh, who who is the second woman that we see killed. Mm-hmm. Um, 
we have uh, the accomplices, the the fashion store owner or uh, or Klaus Tiller's assistant. Yeah, I don't know what she is. Like she like partner. She's, she's ill defined in a way that doesn't bother me. She just is there and is fine with it and is helping. Mm-hmm. And then there's cohorts and and other artists mm-hmm. who are just populating this world. And it's really nice as you're saying because no one is just like there's no grouping is just good or bad. Mm-hmm. E- even on the on the male side you have you have the killer obviously Klaus Tiller and and, and Morpho, you have the incompetent detectives. Mm-hmm. You have you have the Interpol detective yeah. who is less incompetent than the police, mm-hmm. but still somewhat of a boob. And then you also have collaborators or cohorts, accomplices with uh, with Freda and the art dealer, and you have a whole bunch of layers to in which to look at all these different types of people who inhabit this world, and because of because nobody is specifically one way or another, and you have such a wide variety of people, you're able to latch on to different things from different people and see how that plays each time you watch the film. Mm-hmm. Which is, like, getting back to something that, that we were talking about earlier, one of the things that I completely disagree with when people say that Jess Franco is bad at his, is a bad filmmaker or doesn't know what he's doing or was really sloppy, I'm like, look at this. This is all structured incredibly well. Like, there is a lot to digest within this, like, 85-minute film. Ryan Johnson wasn't able to do that in two hours and 20 minutes in Mm -hmm. in Glass Onion. And yet, in an 82-minute film, you have all these fucking layers of all these different characters. And it's distilled, and it runs. And you're like, it's somebody who's like, I don't care if you know what's going on because I do, and either you catch up with me or you fuck right off. Yeah. It's almost like anarchy. Yeah. Because there are moments where, you know, you have your characters talking to camera right mm-hmm. at the beginning of the film. Yes. And <laughs> talking to camera so that they're not naked on screen. Right. It's the best opening. <laughs> She's like, uh oh. And then he has to, they, they zoom in so she can get out of bed and yeah. put on her bathrobe and then uh-huh. we pull out, reveal. She's now got her bathrobe on and it's okay. And and it's hilarious. It, it's direct to camera. It's so great to start the film that way. Yeah. It's right out the gate. And so you it tells you you don't know what you're going to get. And mm-hmm. it'll come out of nowhere and then it'll be gone forever. Yeah. So pay attention. Mm-hmm. Um, it cut, we watched The Young Ones. Yeah. Last night we watched a couple episodes of a TV show from the 90s or 80s. When did – I don't even know when it was made. It was an English TV show – that I loved as a kid uh, so much. And that is also pure anarchy. It is insane. It is crazy. 82 to 84. Okay, there you go. Early 80s. And it, it, it is a complete mindfuck. That show, I feel, is greatly inspired by Franco's work because anarchy in his films still have a through line. They still have a good story structure, as you're talking about. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot to grab onto. But it is chaos. Yeah. And it's also really interesting, like, when I think about the film, like, how he decides to actually give uh, give out information. Because the detectives, the, the Interpol and the police detective, are the only ones who are really giving exposition out. The uh, Diana and Regina never really give out information. They are just living in the moment. Like, mm-hmm. there's this great fucking scene with... Uh, when Diana is pretending to be a countess. 
Oh, I love that scene. And the uh, the guy who is the manager of the art shop, not the one that's played by Jess Franco, but another one who yeah. shows up in the same space, but doesn't live there. It's, again, it who cares? Matter. It, it doesn't fucking matter. doesn't matter. He is seduced by, Di- by Regina, and then she invites him over to their place so that she can buy a piece of art, which happens to be the piece of art that Lita is has been uh, sculpted into. We find this out later. But it's unclear, again, if she knows this or if she just ends up buying the right piece. Again, who gives a fuck? I have no idea. It doesn't matter. Like, it, like these are questions that are unnecessary because what is necessary is the scene in which he comes over to the house. Diana pretends that she's not there, but she is recording the conversation that Regina and the art guy are having with the most obvious microphones most I've obvious ever seen mic- in my life f- yeah huge long cables and, and she keeps giving her directions like you need to speak up so she speaks louder as no human being would do and the, the art director guy doesn't seem to care no, at all he's just caring about her boobs yeah he's caring about her boobs it's and her legs accurate and and she makes possibly the worst drink that i have ever seen in film i it's, don't know what it, it is, was it's gin Olive oil and whiskey, I think. I thought, and maybe absinthe. I don't know. Something green. Was no, involved. no. She she pours the whiskey and she, and it's green. Oh, the, yes. I think she says whiskey, but it's green. Yes, it is not ideal. I'm. Like, you know what? I, it tells me that I don't need to worry about whether or not something looks like whiskey or not next time we make a movie. Yeah. It, it, like as long as you say it, it doesn't matter. Apparently, like it could be amaretto, but who fucking knows? Just like it's so anyway. Like it looks it, disgusting. It looks awful, and so. This, like he gets really drunk because of course he does and uh she's trying to get more information but she's not getting the information out loud enough so diana who has been hiding in the kitchen comes out and, <laughs> and lays down behind them while they're sitting on the couch with the microphones at their faces as they're talking yeah and eventually he sees it and they eventually talk their way out of it, and then he gets murdered, and it doesn't matter. It, it, but and it is so funny. It's so fucking absurd. It is actually absurd. Like, but she's so beautiful, and he's so old, mm-hmm. that it is completely believable that he would be like, I don't care. Yeah. I just want you to take off your top. Yeah. So that's all this other stuff that's happening is fine. Yeah. This is great. And you know what? It's totally believable. It's played so well between everybody on screen that I'm like, yeah, I believe them. Their their disbelief is my disbelief. The the key to it in the absurdity is that it is has a, a crumb of believability. So the first step is old dude that is just really not worth anybody's time mm-hmm. being seduced by stunningly beautiful and hilarious countess. Mm-hmm. So you buy, you can buy a ticket on that bus, right? You're like, yes, I yeah. get it. Yeah. I'm here for this. But then, as you said, all three actors are incredible. And so you're like, yeah, this is how you sell it. Three people who are excellent at their craft, pulling it off. And and so it, it's what makes it so fun. Yeah, it's no different than uh, The Lady Eve with, with, Absolutely. with Barbara Stanswick pretending to be a different person that looks exactly the same as she was, except now has a British accent and is trying to break the heart of the man that broke her heart. And nobody calls her out on the fact that the only difference between her and the other woman is that she has a British accent. And, like, kind of a bad one. And this is where, like, 
taste becomes a thing where people are like, well, that's good because it was Ernst Lubitsch and it was Barbara Stanswyck oh. and it was fuck and it was Henry Fonda. And they're classy. Like it's classy artists doing this really funny send up. Don't you just love it because they're doing this thing? And yes, we do. And yeah, we do. But okay, so uh, Rosanna Yanni is a great performer in this like mm. why the fuck is she not getting the same sort of accolades as as barbara stanswick just because barbara stanswick has more history to her we we denigrate this or just franco because it's not established it's not it's not established it's not well funded mm-hmm. those are the main reasons i yeah. would say it's sort of like we look at barry jenkins movie moonlight mm-hmm. which is a wonderful film and i'm not undercutting it in any way but it was made for, I think I read like $300,000 or it was not very expensive to make in the grand scheme of things. Right. And that's awesome. And then I believe A24 put it out and spent $2 million on advertising. Yeah. And so I think that's my point. It's to say that when you have enough of an establishment behind you to, to fund it, to fund advertising of it, mm-hmm. to say this is valuable. This is credible. You need to watch this. Yeah. And everyone goes, wow, okay, I mean, I'm going to watch this. It's, I mean, to think that you spent that much money on advertising of it compared to the cost of making it, mm-hmm. it's no surprise that Jess Franco isn't viewed in the same light as Ernst Lubitsch. It's, it makes sense because one is studio funded, one is establishment, mm-hmm. and one is, is anarchy, chaos, counterculture. And while you're, the comparison is awesome, yeah, that is a perfect comparison with Lady Eve. Yeah, you're just you're not going to get the establishment to support. Yeah, and it's a shame. Yeah, and it's it, it, one thing that I love about Franco is that he's in this really interesting position in in Spanish films, uh, films from Spain, because he fits kind of this counterculture transgressive cinema that was coming to a head at the end of uh, the dictatorship, and he, in a lot of ways, is. Far out, because you have other filmmakers who are making films like Pals or uh, Arboreto, and we eventually get to people like Almodovar. But we also have filmmakers who are doing like Secret of the Beehive and uh, El Sur and all the films of Carlos Suara that are also kind of touching on this uh, like attacking of the establishment that's happening, but... El Sur and uh, Spirit of the Beehive have been elevated because they're high art. Mm-hmm. But you have people like Franco or Jose Larraz who are making really interesting cinema that was transgressive and counterculture, but they had to scrape together their work. Mm-hmm. And they're just as important to this history of, of the end of Franco's era as these established pieces of art, these establishment approved pieces of art. Mm-hmm. And Franco is is wonderful because he's like, I don't fucking care. Like from everything that I've read, he was an incredibly intelligent, well-versed artist. And yet his films get put into this smaller box of being like, oh, well, he he worked in hardcore. Or there was a lot of nudity in his films. And, and that's somehow not as important. Which is interesting to think about in terms, again, of the role of women and the spectrum of women, because now what we're talking about is nudity of women is either high art or pornographic. And either way you cut it, it is either on a pedestal Mm -hmm. or it is shamed. Women are not allowed to just be women, to just have bodies. It is constantly being policed and judged 
and it is just exhausting. Mm -hmm. And of course his stuff was minimized, his art was minimized, because if he was leaning into the hardcore, if he was leaning into nudity as he was, it was, well, women are nothing. Mm -hmm. Women are garbage, women are not full citizens, only white men, and we would never show men naked mm -hmm. because they are the most important people. But it is worth noting that he did show na men naked And as well. yet another reason why we would minimize him. Yeah. Because, you know, how dare he stand up against the patriarchy? He should yeah. be part of it. He should be supporting the patriarchy. Yeah. Or, it, or, or suddenly he gets put into this like, well, that's just his kink. Like he does this mm. and it, or it gets dismissed by being a thing that he's into that nobody else is. Mm -hmm. And as you're saying, like, not only did he have these bodies on screen, naked bodies on screen, but he also dared to make those bodies powerful women. Yeah. Like, he made them in films like Vampiros Lesbos or She Killed in Ecstasy. His female leads are strong. Like, you have the female vampire. Like, these, these female characters are incredibly complex and intelligent and are unified under the idea that they are powerful mm -hmm. and that they themselves are enough. And that includes both their mind and their body. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't single out one over the other. It actually asks us to decide if we're going to separate those two things as being polar opposites mm -hmm. of a person's identity rather than, no, no, the person's identity is everything that's them. Yes, it's it, complex. It like, is a spectrum. It, it's not... Their gender isn't their identity. No. Their their mind isn't their identity. It's them. That's their identity. The person that's in front of you, that is who they are. That is that is how you view them. And and there's something really incredible, especially in a film like Two Undercover Angels, where you could easily look at the two leads and be like, they're ditzy fucking morons. Mm -hmm. Why the fuck would I watch this film about these two ditzy fucking assholes? And yet they accomplish everything that they're trying to do. They're competent. They understand the stakes of the world that they exist within. They're they smart. They're strong. They're brave. Yeah. They are everything that is inspiring. They are trying to have a good time in spite of everything that's going on in the world around them. Oh, I love that point because they are having fun. And how transgressive is that? Yeah. How dare you have fun? Yeah. Women are dying. You're supposed to be solving this crime and you're having a blast. Yeah. How, of course, of course, this hasn't been revered because how dare women be both good at their job, mm -hmm. sexy, funny, in touch with their bodies, and really fun. Yeah. It, it brings up that thing that you, you mentioned earlier. It brings it back to my, my mind of the dancer who... There's this dancer who shows up twice in the film, and happily she doesn't get murdered. No. Uh, but she, the, both the times that we see her dance, the first time we see her dance, she's dancing, she's writhing on the ground in a dress that she's cutting up with scissors. Like mm -hmm. she's, she's cutting, cutting it off her body. Yeah, she's cutting off her body. And the second time we see her, she is stuck in this like rope cage where there's mm -hmm. just an audience just staring at her. And neither time that we watch her dance does it look like she is enjoying herself, mm -mm. but she is tied and bound to this world. I watch her dance and I think to myself, she is trying to escape the bi like the societal binds, the binds that are around her. Mm -hmm. And this this motif comes up twice in a film that consistently reminds us that artists look at women 
to get their inspiration. And once they get their inspiration, male artists in this case, they are done with them. Mm -hmm. And in this case, they murder them. Yeah. Like I get my inspiration. I take all that I can from you and then you are nothing to me. And I am going to just dispose of you. And if you dare get away, I will use my power to make sure that you are trapped to have to see me so that I can dispose of you this way. I love that. And I love it even more when you think about the fact that he literally encases women into the art. He can't even make the sculptures on his own. He has to just take a body and then make a sculpture around her yeah. because he can't, he's not even talent. He's not talented enough to imagine anything. Yeah. He has to physically do it and like physically capture it and then cover that with art Yeah, to be like, Oh, see, I made this art. Just kidding. I have to steal from women their lives. Yeah. I literally have to take their bodies yeah. and encase them because I can't come up with this on my own. Yeah. It's so feminist. Yeah. You, you cannot possibly exist once I've seen you. You're mine. Mm-hmm. I possess you and I own you and I'm going to take everything that is yours and put it in my art and then you are disposed of. So that's a challenge to, when you watch the film, challenge yourself to see all the different ways women are represented mm-hmm. uh, in this film. It's awesome. It's very diverse. It, yeah. I mean, diverse in terms of women. It is not diverse in terms of race yeah. in any way, shape, or form. Nope. But it is, and it is, and there is, it is queer. Yeah. I think this is also a queer film. And that's exciting too, because as you said, this is 1968. 69. 69. And uh, I love that there are queer characters. I believe the two leads are queer mm-hmm. or fluid or polyamorous or pansexual. And it's awesome yeah. because it's open, it's open to its fluidity. Mm-hmm. And the, um, their sexuality n- never defines them, the two leads. No. Like it is, their sexuality is again just part of who they are as identifying beings. Yes. And you as an audience member are allowed, I think, to just view it however you want. To interpret it as you see fit. Exactly. Because we do have the queer character that is definitely defined as queer mm-hmm. in their friend. Yeah. Who who wants to sleep with Diana. Yes. And I'm sure both of them. Yeah. Um, but I think she's in love with Diana or yeah. at least really crushing on her yeah. and yeah. has been for a while. Yep. Yeah. And also is their friend and is an, an accomplice for them. And it's just so fun. It's just so fun. There's yeah. so much to go to chew on. You won't catch it the first time. Watch it a bunch of times. It's so fun. Just have a great time. Enjoy yourself. It's a film that I think that you just need to watch and say, it doesn't have to make sense. I just have to live with its vibe. Yeah, it's it's it, a vibe. There, there are so many stories that are about Jess Franco that you that you should look up to find out how he financed his films and and how he managed to make his art. It's just big borrow and steal, man. Like that that dude just did all of that consistently. We get that. We mentioned before our movie just came out, and funding is extremely difficult. And then getting people to know about it is extremely difficult. It is so hard to be outside of the system, to have an idea and to pull it off. We made our movie with two people, me and Austin. That was it. And yes, then there was amazing people we hired in to be part of the process. Emma, based in London, who did our sound engineering. We had Sue, also in London, who did the Foley. We had Victoria, who did our score. Oh, it's incredible, by Black Cactus. There's so many amazing people that worked on the film with us, but at the end of the day, it was me and Austin and with no funding. You know, you just, you find a little bit, you work a little harder, you save a little bit, you put it into the film, and 
it's it's just hard to explain how complicated and difficult it is to make a movie with no support. Yeah. And the harder part now is our discovery of how do you get people to know about it. Mm-hmm. And so the fact that he could make over 200 films, scrappy the way that we make it, is imp- I don't understand. Imp- I'm so impressed. Yeah, it is impressive. I'm so inspired. So uh, one last thing that I, I wanted to say uh, or touch on is this film is terribly reviewed. If you look in in and around IMDb or, or other places, it's not, it is not a loved film by any means. Uh, and let me just read a little bit of of this one review. This is it going to make me angry? I don't know. Okay, let's find out. This one three-star review called A Real Mess from Jess Franco. Already I'm angry. Uh, uh, Sadist Erotica is a great title for a film. Sadly, the title is more or less the only good thing about this effort. This is a real mismatch of ideas. Part horror, comic book hero, comedy, sexploitation, and mystery. And really, it doesn't do justice to any of those genres. The plot follows a couple of women investigating a series of murders connected to a mysterious artist. This is a Jess Franco film, so expectations have to be lowered accordingly. (gasps) The man made some decent flicks, and then I'm going to skip ahead. The comedy is hopeless. The horror completely unscary. The nudity unerotic. The mystery uninvolving. The only positive I can offer is that it is pretty weird. The other thing that I'm really struggling to think of anything kind to say about this. Franco is an acquired taste. And this is not one of his best. And the reason that I love this. What? The reason that I think this is a really good review of this is because I think that this is how people look at just Franco. They have this expectation. And that expectation can never be met. They have an expectation that the, like, how many things does that person list off that the, the, the the nudity is unerotic. Why does it have to be erotic? Like, right? It could well, just be nude. Yeah. N- nudity, like, that's your own, like, you're telling on yourself. The the comedy is unfunny. You're you. telling on yourself. Like, all the things that that person listed are about personal preferences and not about the film. Because they have an expectation of what the film needs to be for them to enjoy it. Instead of saying, this film is of itself well-made and, and and thought out by the filmmakers. They even said, Jess Franco, this is a Jess Franco film, so lower your expectations right. accordingly. And yet, they didn't lower their expectations. There, like, there's so many, like, the thing about talking about films is that most people get into a place where they believe that they know better than the filmmakers who made it. Yes. And... And while I know that I'm coming from a place as being a filmmaker, the idea that somebody who didn't have anything to do with the film knows how to make the film better is absolute lunacy. Yeah. Anybody who is out there just criticizing things because somebody else made it and it didn't live up to their own expectation is probably somebody who's not making things. Yeah. They are just criticizing things. And criticism is fine. No. But but criticism is is just another attribute that we have, like laughter, like sadness. It's just a thing that exists that shouldn't be taken any more seriously than anything else in your day. I will go back to my favorite quote from The Clouds of Sils Maria, 
which I highly recommend if you have not watched yet, is an incredible piece of art. And the quote is, as I've said before, the text is an object and it changes perspective depending on where you're standing. And in this instance, that's true for criticism too. Like on that day, that person had that expectation Mm -hmm. and showed up and had that opinion. But in a month or a year or 20 years, they could watch the film again and go, oh, wow, I missed all of these things. Or this is erotic. Or this is extremely funny. Or I love this performance. Fill in the blank, whatever. Mm -hmm. It's just that moment. And I think you're absolutely right when you say a criticism is a reflection on the person making the criticism, not on the art. And I love that what we try to do with this podcast specifically, and what we try to do in general with art, is come with an open mind and believe in the creators, believe in the actors, believe in the filmmakers, believe in the editors, believe in the cinematographers and say, you know what you're doing. Let me see if I can understand it. Now, not every film is going to work for you. Right. I clearly do not much care for Marvel films, but they're all exceptionally well done. Mm-hmm. It's just not my jam. That's yeah. fine. No problem. I want to find the art that makes me think and makes me question and makes me uncomfortable and makes me laugh. Mm -hmm. All the different things. I want art that makes me feel. Yeah. And I think that I want to come to the table always in a place that is is going to enjoy the art and not just fight it. Yeah. I think too many people come to fight. Same with reading books or listening to songs or whatever. They Mm -hmm. come ready to fight the artist. Yeah, they come ready to be more right than the person who made it. Right, and I think that's just, you're right. It's just a reflection of that person. Mm -hmm. It has nothing to do with the art. Yeah. It's not an engaging conversation. It's a it's one of denigration and one of dismissal. And it shuts the door to yeah. conversation. Yeah. And I think that's the my favorite thing about art is that it, it encourages conversation. Mm-hmm. How you felt about it, how I felt about it, how that person over there felt about it. It gives us a chance to talk. And so, yeah, always we always encourage you to come to the table and watch these films with an open mind mm-hmm. and know that they meant everything they set up. And that's rad. And that doesn't mean it has to work for you. No, that's okay. Yeah, but like just because it didn't work for you doesn't mean that it's bad. Or that you should denigrate it. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, you can if you want to as well. Yeah. Do whatever you want. Yeah. We're just saying have fun. Yeah, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't help the discourse to just denigrate something because you disliked it. That's right. It shuts down the conversation. Yeah, it, and... And frankly, like there's too many things in this world right now that are shutting down conversation and not enough things that are being that are inspiring people to be like, you know what? I didn't think about that that way or I didn't I haven't engaged with it that way. And 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 there are some things there are truly some things that shouldn't be communicated about anymore because we have run their course. But in the relationship to art, like there's there's so much to talk about. I would also say. When you're approaching a film or a filmmaker that you don't know anything about or that maybe doesn't work for you the first time or you don't quite understand, believe in yourself as well as believing in the filmmaker. Mm -hmm. Believe that maybe you didn't get it yet, but maybe you did. Mm -hmm. And that you did get the vibe right. You did understand what they were trying to do. Whether or not it works for you is a different story. Mm -hmm. But believe in your own interpretation understanding and then keep pushing yourself. Make sure it's a muscle that you're using. Yeah. When you watch these films, stretch yourself and make yourself uncomfortable and mm-hmm. put yourself into films that you're not used to being around yeah. and see how that works for you. And then try again and try again and try again and then keep going and keep exploring. There's so much art out there. Yeah. You do not have to be confined to what's on Netflix. Yeah, it's 
to me, it's that wonderful Simpsons joke with uh, with Marge Simpson looking at the all the spices, and there are eight spices, and she says, mm, "Some of these must be doubles." And then oregano, but but like it's that sort of thing. Like if you if you think to yourself that I only can watch romantic comedies, that's totally fine. But there are a thousand different types of romantic comedies. Yes. You don't have to just like you can you can try the sweet basil version of romantic comedies. You can try the the plain basil. Like you can try the cayenne pepper. Yeah, like you can try the different flavors of the art forms that you like and expand your palate within that. Mm-hmm. Like if you limit yourself to a very specific thing, like there's just no conversation. No, and that's and, it. That's what we're talking about. We just want to have a conversation. Yeah. So make sure you're enabling yourself to have that conversation and make sure you believe in yourself. Mm-hmm. You can do it. Yes. Like don't shit on yourself because you don't get it. Mm-hmm. It's okay. I don't always get it either. You don't always get it. And that's what's fun. Mm-hmm. It's like not being uncomfortable, not getting it. Yeah. Trying anyway. I love it. Yeah. So we encourage you to take yourself out of your comfort zone and keep pushing. Mm-hmm. And find more things. There's so many amazing artists out there. Yeah. Which is a great time to turn to what would you like to stumble upon next? I would like to stumble upon not a movie this time. It's mm-hmm. I'm just gonna I, I I want to uh I wanna send a little stumble upon to uh Twitch of the Death Nerve mm-hmm. to to our friends Charles and Sam and John, who do an incredible podcast about psychotronic and other other types of cinema. They have a wonderful podcast. And honestly, over the past, I want to say four years, since I first came across Sam's writings, my experience with cinema has changed incredibly because of the wealth of knowledge that Sam has. And the conversation- Sam is brilliant. Yeah, Sam is brilliant, as is Charles and as is John. I fucking adore all three of them and and- I just want to give anybody who has a chance to listen to their podcasts and to expand their minds a little bit further than some of the things that we talk about here to inspire people to to check that out. Yeah, absolutely check out their podcast. And then if you're interested in more of Jess Franco, you should check out Sam's previous podcast that has since been retired, but there are a lot of episodes you can dig into and uh, Sam is a historian. She's a film historian. She is an academic mind. She's so well versed in cinema, like so aspirational for me. I am so blown away by her knowledge, her expertise, and so in her previous podcast was was called Daughters of Darkness. Yeah, named after the film. And you can hear her talk about Jess Franco in the middle of the pack of episodes. You can dig in through the middle. Yeah. And there's a whole episode on Jess Franco, and I th- it's brilliant. Yeah, they cover, th- she and uh, her podcasting partner cover uh, like four or five Franco films. Mm-hmm. So dig-, dig in, and you can learn even more about his work from A Brilliant Mind. Uh, highly recommend that. Yeah. So what I would like to recommend for Stumbling Upon next is a Greek filmmaker who I love. And I'm going to butcher her name, but I'm going to try anyway. Do you need me to hold that further away from you? No, shut up. (laughs) (laughs) I am blind and I don't have my glasses on. Thank goodness (laughs) this is an audio form. (laughs) Yeah, well, they didn't have to know that I couldn't see it. You had to tell everybody. Well, that's why it's an audio form. I have to get the play-by-play for how amazing your glasses are. Shut up. Go, go, Gadget Arm. (laughs) Okay. 
<laughs> also, I apologize for my voice right now. We are recovering from an illness. And uh, yeah, that's what my voice sounds like. So deal with it. Okay. So the filmmaker I want to recommend is a Greek filmmaker. And her name is Athena Rachel Tinsagari. I'm not totally sure I'm spell- pronouncing that right. So I'm just going to put it in the show notes. But she made a short film called The Capsule. And it's so good. Yeah. So if you like Franco, it's nothing like that. And therefore, you should watch it. Yeah. If you are willing to watch a Jess Franco film, you should be watching a uh, watching The Capsule as well. Yeah, The Capsule is so good. It's very surreal. It's very abstract. Mm-hmm. It's featuring all women. It's a really good film. And it is... It'll break your brain open. Yeah, it, it has a lot of ties to like the work of Maya Dearden, mm-hmm. and it just is—it's an engaging film. If you just if you just turn off what you're thinking about and let it guide you to whatever you think about from it, I think that's a really good description. Just let it wash over you. Yeah, I think that's the best way to do it. It's especially when you're watching experimental film. Mm-hmm. Just stop fighting for the plot. Yeah. There's probably not one. It's about a vibe. Yeah. Let it just be a collection of pictures that inspire other thoughts in you yeah. and take your brain on its own roller coaster ride. Yeah. And that's more fun. So that's what I would recommend to stumble upon next. Yeah. So thank you for hanging out with us and yeah. catching back up. I know it's been a bit and we're happy to be back in the podcast recording studio. Please rent or buy our film Citywide. We would love to show you the art that we make. Yeah. As always, you can follow us on Instagram at Fishtown Films or Twitter, where we never, ever post. But but we are watching the downfall of society through. I know. (laughs) So do you think Elon Musk will be out shortly? No. Damn it. Yeah. Thank you for coming by. Thank you for visiting with us and hanging out. And we look forward to the next episode of War, Mm -hmm. where we will release on Instagram what it is ahead of time so you can watch it. Yeah, or, or, or not. We, we may not get there. We might not do that. <laughs> it's a threat more than a promise. <laughs> <laughs> and good night. Thank you very much. Take care, y'all. Happy New Year. <laughs> <laughs>